taki tahi, engari he toa taki tini, ti hei mauri ora. I gotta say, James got me feeling combative this morning. And I'm really pleased, thanks music team for uh, your selection of songs because a good, good God, faithful in his promises, uh, we need that kind of context because whoo, we got fighting words coming up this morning. So let's read them. It's uh, James 2 is where we're up to, verses 14 to 26, the second half of the chapter. It goes like this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. I'll show you my faith by my deeds. Do you believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Put him up. This uh, passage, you know, it's, it's got two halves to it. The first half, he's making his point, and the second half, he's making a couple of case studies. In the first half of it, uh, I think we can dispose of relatively easily and actually probably, despite the history of the church, uncontroversially. Uh, so let's give that a crack. And then a, a man who I wrestled with that second half. So let's wrestle together. The first half, there are three verses that I think you, you can compress it and, it and it gives the story, gives the point that he's trying to make, which you've probably already got, right? And he says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? And <laughs> I sat in that verse for a little while and I was like, everything I was told in Sunday school and youth group is wrong. It was, it was a, a, a kind of an unstitching, an unlearning when, uh, when James says, you don't just believe, what good is just believing? What, what good is just having the right ideas? What good is that? Can that save you? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Now, this is our first fight 
because uh, Paul says something quite different. You might be familiar with it when he says, you're saved by faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. So who's right? <laughs> Let's chuck him in a ring and find out, shall we? Is it faith by itself or is faith by itself dead? They seem to be saying completely opposite things. I'm not going to give you an easy out on that. Not yet. And just to underscore it, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. And you might say, but I've spent a lot of time, and this is me talking to myself, I've spent a lot of time doing theological study. I've got some pretty good ideas about God. For instance, there's one God, right? That's good. It's true. It's good. It's good to believe that there's one God because, you know, it's true. <laughs> good. Who else believes there's one God? More thoroughly than you and I, probably, with a better understanding of all kinds of stuff. Demons probably know how many angels can dance on a pinhead, right? If anyone was to write a systematic theology and get it right, it's probably the demons. You believe there's one God? That's great. There are good ideas, great theology, fantastic. Like, I'm, I'm not trying to throw babies out with bathwater here. That is good. But it's not sufficient. Has anyone um, been thinking about that Paul versus James thing here? I want to suggest something that helps to resolve the apparent conflict. It, it's what they're trying to address. It's the problem they're talking about. So when Paul is talking about you're saved by faith, not works, the problem that he's trying to deal with is legalism. He's got a bunch of people who are saying you've got to be circumcised, you've got to observe the food laws, the Sabbath. There's, you know, there's, you've got to be Jewish and obey all that stuff. And he's saying, no, those things won't save you. It's faith that saves you. James has got a different problem. He's got a problem with people who are like, hey, I've got faith. And don't do anything more. And if I had to pick, just on a gut feeling, I'd say James's problem is more like our problem. Where we say, yeah, I believe there's one God. And that's where it stops. Perhaps not entirely. But it slows down after that. What good is it to have faith without deeds? Ah. Now, <laughs> I wondered about whether or not I should talk about this. So, so here's my deal. I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to talk while this slide is up. I'm going to say some stuff. It's going to be helpful for some of you. It's going to be teaching it to suck eggs for other people, and for some of you, it might be completely confusing. So, here's my deal. From, from now until the next slide, 
which is actually just going back to the previous slide. From now until the next slide, if it's confusing, just eject it. If it's helpful, hold on to it. Okay. I think some of the problem that James is dealing with and that we still face comes from this guy, Plato. Plato lived about 500 years before Jesus. His name actually is his wrestling nickname. It means broad. He was a wrestler and he had big shoulders. So uh, Plato came up with an idea and he goes like this. Imagine there was a, a room full of people all facing in one direction. Can you imagine that? But they're not just sitting there, they're chained. So that they can't even move their heads. They're fixed facing one direction. But they've been, they've been in that position their whole lives. They don't know any different. And they're looking at the back wall. And uh, every now and then, shadows kind of flicker across the back. And, you know, there's curtains and stuff, so it's all a bit rippled. But there's a blazing light behind them that they, don't, they know nothing about. And every now and then, something walks in front of that blazing light, and so they, they see the shadow of it over here. And, uh, well, here's the shadow of a horse kind of flickering along. And here's over there in the corner. That, that looks like it. Well, that's a chair. That's a chair. And so what Plato's uh, thinking is, this is the material world that we experience, but the real world is behind us. Because what's happening is uh, when you see a horse flickering across here in the material world, that's just a, that's just a reflection, that's a shadow of the real thing in what he called the world of forms. And so the real horse is back there behind us, but we've never seen a real horse. But we know that a horse is a horse and not a cow, because before we were born, we lived in the world of forms, and we've seen the true horse and the true cow, so we know the difference when we see it reflected back there. All learning is just remembering. Whew, okay. One day, one day, someone breaks free of their chains and looks behind them, and they see the blazing light and the true forms, and they struggle. <laughs> They've never used their limbs before. They struggle. And they break other people's chains and say, look. And this is the job of the philosopher, to tear people away from the material world towards the immaterial world and the truth and the good. That's the job of the philosopher. Now, a few hundred years later, we have Christians and they're living in a world that is shaped a lot by this thinking. And they're starting to think, oh, there's a spiritual and a material, and they're different from each other. And the ideas are more important than the things. And this is a, a way of thinking that continues to today, where we might think it's more important, for instance, to believe there's one God than to Google whether or not there's any slavery in the supply chain of our genes, right? And the, the good doing material stuff is, is yeah, yeah, maybe we'll do that, maybe we won't, but really we're focused on the ideas. That's the important stuff. James says, you believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. We shouldn't be separating our ideas from our hands. And if we look in the Old Testament, there's no such thought as a separation of body and soul or, or anything like that. It's all, we are just 
this is, this is what we are. The material and the spiritual, uh, <laughs> if, if you have a body with no spirit in it, it's a corpse. Right? You can't separate them because that's the definition of death. <laughs> so, all right. If that was helpful, hang on to it. If it wasn't, you believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Now let's get on to our case study that he puts forward because, <laughs> well, let's look at this verse. Uh, actually, I do have the text, like the, oh, okay, the parishes thing. Uh, James isn't just coming up with stuff that he makes up. He's going to reach back into the scriptures to support what he's saying. And there's a couple of Old Testament uh, connections that he makes particularly. The first one is with Abraham. Anyone ever heard of Abraham? Good. Any of those hands want to tell us uh, the story of Abraham and Isaac when Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac? Anyone? I've got a microphone over here. Anyone want to tell that story? Oh, thank you, Nancy. Okay, um, Abraham believed God wanted to take his precious son, who was precious, born after a long time, and own his only son, and sacrifice him. And they set out for a mountain of Moriah. They took with them the fire and the knife and nothing else. And they got to the mountain of Moriah, and they went up the mountain, and Isaac asked Abraham, Father, where's the fire and the knife, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham replied, my son, God will provide. And then they got to the top, and they bu he built an altar, and he bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar. And he raised his hand with the knife, and God spoke to him and said stop and he looked behind him and there was a ram caught in the thicket bushes and he offered that in place of Isaac is that a good enough summary That's my great. friend yeah you can tell she spent a lot of years telling stories right yeah so that's the first one the next one is Rahab. <laughs> oh, is this um, KYB? You've, you've been looking at Rahab? Okay. KYB, ladies. Tell us about Rahab. Or, or someone else. Maybe not such a well-known story. Hey, thanks, Nara. So Rahab was a prostitute um, who was living in a house that was on the walls of Jericho and um, she came across or um, some spies that were sent in by Joshua to um, check out the city. She took them in and um, 
actually recognise, um, almost unbelievably, recognise straight away that your God is the God. And so she protected the spies um, because soldiers were looking for them. So she hid them um, at her own risk. Sorry, I'm getting breathless. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get the yeah. story out too quickly. <laughs> um, she hid the, the spies on, uh, under some flats, it's described, until the soldiers had passed. And then she told them to, um, to um, well, she let them out the window of her house that was on the wall of the city. And, um, and told them to go into the hills for three days to wait it out while they were being searched for. And um, after the three days had passed, they went back safely to the rest of the Israelites. And Rahab had made a, a, a deal or a bargain, if you like, with the spies and said, um, you know, we know that you're coming, <laughs> um, but will you protect myself and my family? And they said to her, well, yes, um, that if... The, the if she didn't give them up, that um, she could expect that her and her family would be would be spared. And they told her to put a the cord or a red cord. I don't know if it was the cord that she let them down with, but that's the way I kind of think about it. That this cord was to be tied in her window so that they'd be able to identify her and her family. And um, and they were spared, and they went on to become part of that community. Hmm. Oh, do you remember? putting you on the spot but <laughs> do you remember how she described her and fellow Jerichoites how they how they felt about the approach of Israel um well they were afraid yeah <laughs> very afraid um yeah I don't know if that's the right word. their hearts melted within them yeah 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 that's right thank you round of applause <laughs> oh, we probably want that again right Okay, now I've read James before, this isn't my first time, uh, but in the past I've just kind of read that bit and gone, James must know what he's talking about and not thought anything more about it. But this time I, I kind of stopped, I thought about these stories, went back and read them again. Uh, so Tuesday lunchtime I came into Jeremy's office and I was like, I'm frustrated with James. He said, James who? <laughs> That's an insight into a pastor's life, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I meant the book because his, his two examples is a guy who's going to kill his son and a woman who commits treason. I had a problem with that. Of all the stories we have of Abraham, why would you pick this one? Right? Why not? Hey, Abram, uh, Get up and leave. Where are we going? Uh, I'll show you later. That's faith in action. Why not that story? Why this one? Mm, Jehovah Jireh, yeah, the Lord will provide, but still. You could make your case with easier, less problematic stories. And then Rahab, yeah, she's terrified. Is someone being terrified of God? faith <laughs> that's that's a difficult story too because then she lies to her king and deceives people who come to her house and then shelters her and her family and her household 
while the rest of her people are destroyed. Ouch. Come on, James. Make this easy for us, please. Oh. I was frustrated. Uh, one of the conclusions that I came to, uh, so we, we spoke for a while, and I was like, maybe, I don't know, like if we're going to try and make this land for people, maybe it's something like, what's something weird that God wants you to do? Or something countercultural? But I was like, ah, that, doesn't, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel like a good landing spot. Just give the weirdos enough rope to hang themselves. That's, that's, that can't be it. And so, so I, I, I mulled it over for a couple of days, and then I was like, oh, oh, I think I got it. Now, this is the beauty of Scripture, and, and some people call James wisdom literature, uh, and I, I think this is why, because you really have to wrestle with it and think about it. It's, this is not, I grew up thinking that James laid it out nice and clear, and here's how it is. But nah, you've got to wrestle and you've got to think and by the help of the Spirit understand what the Scriptures are trying to tell us here. Why child sacrifice and treason? And, and I, I recognize I'm putting those in the most uncharitable terms possible. But it's because they both, they, they reach a, a crunch point there's a, a moment of crisis, and they have to do something. For Abraham, he has been told by God to do this. What are you going to do? Obey, right? If you're a person of faith who believes that obedience to God is important, Abraham thought that he was going to actually have to kill his son, the son of the promise, you know, so through you will, will become, will come many nations. What's the wording on that? Uh, this is God's promise to Abraham. Through you, you'll, you'll be father of many nations. And you've got one son of the promise. And he's being asked to kill him. So Abraham thinks he's going to have to kill him. And then God's going to have to perform some kind of resurrection miracle or something if he's going to keep his promise as well as have Abraham be, be obedient. It's a crunch point. And he acts not out of fear, but faith. Now, Rahab is terrified. They've seen, they've heard from 40 years earlier what happened to the Egyptians as they left Egypt. Here they are, they're coming, they're entering into the promised land and Jericho is in their sights and the people are terrified. She knows that it's not because of their military skill. She knows it's because of their God. And she believes that their God is giving the Israelites this land of Canaan. And she has an opportunity to demonstrate that belief when the spies come. And to, to go against everything she's perhaps been brought up with. Abraham, I'm sure, was in anguish. Rahab, I'm sure, was in anguish. But in those moments, those crunch moments, they acted from faith, from what they knew to be true. They believed there was God, <laughs> Yahweh, right? That was good. And now it's time to do something more. 
think about who James is writing to. In, the, in chapter 1, after he introduces himself, in verse 2, he says, In verse 2, he says, Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, whose audience is suffering, but in anguish. Ah, Abraham, Rahab, not good times. But how do they act? they had faith in no deeds, but faith was useless. So this is um, living with wisdom, this series. And wisdom means being able to wrestle with what we know to be true in order to make make it work out in our lives. So if our faith is to be accompanied by action, what do we do? (laughs) This becomes very practical. What do we do? Let's have a look at the end of chapter 1. Religion that God our Father considers pure and faultless is what? To look after orphans and widows in their distress keep yourself from being polluted by the world. That's what we do. Now, I'm going to bracket off. <laughs> I skipped over the Jesus stuff. I'm going to skip over the um, keep yourself pure stuff as well. I want to focus on the orphans and widows. Orphans and widows are not so much a feature of our society as in Jesus' day or in James' day. But orphans and widows in distress as a metaphor is all around us. The people who are pushed to the margins. Rahab was literally on the edge of her society. She lived in a wall, right? The pe- who, are, who are on the margins? Who's powerless and voiceless and suffering? Who are the orphans and widows in distress? And we look around our community And we look for those people and we take them from the edge and we bring them into the center. There was a challenge laid out by um, Aaron last week. I'm not sure if he actually said these words, but this is what I heard. Um, What would it look like or what would it take for in a year's time for us to be in this room and maybe feel a little uncomfortable about some of the people we're sharing space with? What would that take? to bring people from the margins and put them in here, in the center. Who are those orphans and widows in distress? And the church has a lot of things going on. Uh, One of of the orphans and widows of our day, it has been claimed by some theologians, is the environment too. We don't have to just think about humans, we can think about the non-human too. God loves his creation. But it's not just a collective effort. 
although that's true too. We all, during the week, are in different places that the rest of us won't go to, and so who are the marginalized, the vulnerable in those places? Who's, who's always the butt of the joke? You know, who's, who's in distress out there that we need to help? This isn't something I can tell you to do, right? This is something that, in the pursuit of wisdom, wrestling with scriptures and aided by the Holy Spirit, you work out for yourselves too. But that is also, in a strange way, a collective thing that we need to do together. So let's talk about that together. Let's think again about those opportunities. Oh, there's that sheet. Is that just for Sunday mornings? Is that yeah. <laughs> Maybe you can hand write on some extra things that <laughs> you'd like to be involved with outside of the Sunday mornings on that little sheet as well. Um, I started with a, uh, I usually start with a, a Māori proverb and then translate it, and I've held off on translating it until now. So here's, here's what I opened with. Um, e harataki toa ki te toa tatahi, engari te toa tatini. That means my success is not mine alone, it's a group effort. So whether we're thinking about as a church or in our individual spaces during the week, it's going to take a group effort to take our faith and make it work in action. I know I'm way over time. I'm going to finish with one example from the first century. Yeah, okay. That might give you an idea of the kinds of things that James would have in mind. Um, and Paul, Paul writes, you know, neither slave nor free, male, female, Gentile, uh, Jew or Gentile, Greek or something. Um, these are the basic categories of society, and if you were male, you didn't dine with females. If you were a slave, you'd never share a table with your master. You know, all that sort of stuff. All these divisions were very rigid. But when it came to the Sunday morning communion, we, they all came together. Slaves and masters, women and men, Jews and Greeks, shared a table. Now, if I invited a friend, a neighbor, to come to this, they would be deeply scandalized. This is the kind of difference that the church was affecting in their day. What can we imagine? What can we imagine as a community to affect good, positive change? And Paul said, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father. 